Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. Our guest for today's episode is Rhonda McGee. Rhonda V. McGee is an international public intellectual, keynote speaker, author, mindfulness teacher, and innovator. She is professor of law at the University of San Francisco, where she directs the Center for Contemplative Law and Ethics. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Hello and welcome. My name is Thomas Hubel. This is the point of relation. That's my podcast. And I'm sitting here today with Rhonda McGee. Welcome, Rhonda. Hi, Thomas. Thank you. I was looking forward to our conversation. Uh, I said it just before we were uh, we do this collective trauma summit every year, and you had an interview. And when I saw when I saw your interview, I said, "Oh, I I, I wanted to do this interview." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so now we are sitting here, so I'm very happy, and I think we share many things and uh, like many passions. And I would love to hear from you, because I. You speak a lot for mindfulness, maybe also deep mindfulness. We can talk about what that or soulful mindfulness. We can yes. talk about this later a bit. But maybe how, how did you come to practice mindfulness to be a voice for mindfulness? And then we can see what it does is for our world. Yeah. Well, thank you for that good question. Um, you know, it's an interesting question because for me, I sometimes think about how mindfulness is a um has become a way for me to feel more at home in my own body, in my own way um, of being, you know, in relationship to this thing called life. In other words, there's a certain way in which I feel like I I was sort of um, always uh, looking for a way to sort of stay more in the present. Um, you know, I, as a, as a young girl, I have these memories of just really being attuned to sunlight as it falls across a space or, you know, sort of just wanting more pause. I'm an introvert, et cetera. So, and then of course I grew up in a, well, of course, to those who may have heard or read any of my work before, some may be familiar with the fact that I grew up in a Christian home and with a grandmother who, um, sort of embodied a way of centering herself in prayer and being present to that kind of contemplative dimension, if you will, as a support for moving through the, you know, the difficulties of her life, um, which were many, right? She was, you know, doing hard work as a house cleaner and all of that kind of stuff. So I think there are different inputs to the kind of orientation that I had that made me very receptive when I finally encountered mindfulness. And actually for me, it was in the form of a book about meditation from a Hindu perspective. Uh, The book happened to be called the Bhagavad Gita for daily living. My partner's from India, although he wasn't really reading that book at that time, he had it on his shelf. And um, I just took it down. And, you know, this is many years ago now, but I took it down and and found this description of one-pointed meditation that because of where I was in my life, it just really felt like, yes, this is exactly what I need. And where I happened to be at that time was, this is fast forward through the childhood. I had graduated from law school 
and moved from uh, Virginia, where I'd went to law school out on the East Coast in the Southeast of the U.S., to California, to San Francisco, where I had my first job. And I'd just been studying for years and just preparing. And then my partner's family had the resources to go off on a post-bar exam trip. So he went to India actually with his family and went, you know, did some things. And I was, uh, I didn't have those resources, so I was at home. And I just couldn't shut things off. I just could not really relax. I was still like looking for something to do. And so when I found that description of one-pointed meditation, it really felt like, okay, this might be a particular benefit to me right now. And that that's how I started on the journey of kind of more formally experimenting with the practice to help keep me centered in a way that felt very quickly, like sort of familiar, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And uh, and I, I, I share with you the, the feeling of how we ground ourselves in the body through mindfulness, how we feel more centered. These are all very beautiful aspects that uh, are a result of our practice. So how long do you practice mindfulness now when you say it's a, it's a long journey? Like how long is, is your practice? Well, how long has it been in terms of years? Yeah. yeah. So that moment that I described was, you know, like 1993. So <laughs> we are now in the 30th year. Just shocking. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, shocking. <laughs> so like, How this? yeah. So uh, it's been 30 years of this, this more formal practice. Um, and as I say, there are ways that I, I sort of feel like before that formal practice, there were different, um, you know, informal or other kinds of practices that were delivering me to a certain kind of presence. But yeah, it's been 30 years of exploring meditation and, you know, ultimately finding, you know, a community of practice here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And now, you know, I feel I'm part of many different kinds of communities of practice and really a large, if you will, Maha Sangha, like a, you know, a world sangha in a certain sense. Yeah, mm. it's been all of those years. That's beautiful. And, bef and before we continue, like, let's see from the beginning when you started and where you are today, can you describe a little bit how it feels like the internal change you went through, through your mm. practice? So what, what, how can you describe the change for somebody that's is interested in mindfulness, but or has a little experience. So when we do it for a long time, what are actually the internal changes that that you observed, for example? I let's see. I mean, I think it's sometimes a little tricky to put it into words because I think it is a certain subtlety to it. I think for me, there's just been a changes in a lot of different areas. So if I just speak about Changes in terms of awareness of the of the body, or you know, my sense of uh, my body in the in the you know the moments of my life where mindfulness feels like a feature of the you know not not in the periphery but more to the fore. You know, I think it's just again increasing the sense I have of the subtle ways that um, you know my 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 thoughts, my emotions, sensations in the body sort of arise and, and influence each other, co-influence each other, you know? Mm -hmm. So being more aware of the kind of subtle push that if I'm open to it undergirds a kind of reaction that I might be, you know, moving toward wanting to seize in an almost automatic way with this kind of mindfulness, I can sense it's not quite automatic. There are these inputs to it. And that opens up a field of choice, right? An opportunity to discern just how much I want to go with that push into a certain kind of, you know, kind of emotional state or thought, you know, um, rumination or, or action. So, you know, a kind of a first approximation for mindfulness grounded in the body for me is that opening of awareness of that, the kind of co-arising, if you will, of impulses 
from experiences that start in the body and from all of that, just having a little bit more choice Mm -hmm. (laughs) so that as I move through the world and things are happening and they're happening to us all, we're taking it, you know, I'm taking in the the feed from this guy's phone, you know, and the, all the different ways that I am, you know, uh, you met in the world by people's reactions to me. Um, you know, as being in these bodies, to me, it's like this radical, like really diverse um, uh, trip, if you will, <laughs> any moment, mm-hmm. right? It's mm-hmm. kind of so full of inputs. And mindfulness to me has been a way of being more just present to mm-hmm. those things and not just the dis- potential distresses which I've kind of described in this reflection, but really all the joy and the potential ease and delight, right? That That is also a part of that. And that, so that's the, that's one piece. And then I can, it, it you know, co-arising with that for me, right? In, you know, these days is a lot of, you know, kind of loving acceptance, Mm. My own experience that extends to other people, you know, you realize we're all kind of formed by all kinds of things. <laughs> so any mm-hmm. temptation to put other people in boxes is a little, you know, feels immediately fallacious, right, and unwise as well. So giving other people more space to be, yeah, that's also a part of where, you know, what what feels alive in terms of mindfulness as a support for moving through the the world in these Mm-hmm. You know, the everydayness of of my life. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's like what I what I take away is like there's more choice, there's more presence and space, and there is uh, also an intensification of the experience. So joy becomes more joyful, and we become more engaged in the world, we're more present. So this is all very lovely. And you said loving acceptance. It's also a beautiful state, right? And um, and so. Um, you speak also about mindfulness and deep or soulful mindfulness. Well, what's what's the difference uh, in these terminologies for you? Yeah, I have to say, um, I always feel that with language, uh, as as beautiful as it is and delightful as it is, for example, to be in this conversation with you, connecting across you know miles and cultures and experiences. It's also a trap because <laughs> it's like also we're trying to use words to describe something. And uh, it's quite often the case that, you know, for me, um, you know, I'll use a word that other people are using to mean one thing and we'll think we're talking about the same thing, but we're, we're kind of not. And that seems not infrequently so with this term mindfulness. So and I and, and at the same time. I don't purport to have a ready way of fixing or capturing that term <laughs> that I think um, is, you know, finite or, 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 you know, does a great job in the ways that I might want it to. So that's just my preamble about like just words as symbols pointing towards something that, you know, again, bringing that spacious holding to, you sort of know we're maybe just trying to arrive at a meaning Around mindfulness, it feels very much like, you know, in the in the world as I see it from here in San Francisco in the United States, you know, my regular day job for many years has been as a law professor. Um, the places and spaces where I see mindfulness often invite a kind of focus on breath and, and um, a narrow band, if you will of engagement with what what I find when I explore the teachings of the Buddha and um, the interpretations and, and, and reflections on those teachings from guides for me, like Thich Nhat Hanh um, uh, in the you know, Vietnamese Zen Buddhist tradition that he has so beautifully expounded upon uh, and did over the course of his life, may he rest in peace, like, has given us. And then folks also, like my contemporary friend and teacher, Bhikkhu Inalio from the Theravadan uh, Buddhist tradition. In other words, for me, there's just 
so much <sighs> undergirding what we have often um, sort of sliced off and packaged for commercialization and commodity purposes in the, in the move toward bringing mindfulness you know, out of the monasteries or off the cushions and into the world. A beautiful move. You know, I'm so grateful that that has happened. I wouldn't be here if it hadn't happened, really, in a certain real sense. With teachers like John Kabat-Zinn, my heart friend and teacher along this journey, and many, many others who have helped, you know, the world. Um, alongside people like Thich Nhat Hanh, sort of in this effort to translate in a way, and um, provide a doorway in to these practices and their deeper contextualized kind of wisdom, allied disciplines, you might say. Like all that is, um, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing to try to take millennia old practices that have been developed in particular contexts and have been lovingly held in certain ways for thousands of years. And then to try and make them, you know, perfectly available to everyone from the head of, you know, fill in the blank, your high tech company here, uh, to, you know, five-year-olds in a classroom in a city near, near me right now. And everything in between where we're trying to kind of make my, something called mindfulness accessible and a support across these radically different spaces. And that's a beautiful invitation and opportunity again. And there's a lot, the ethics of mindfulness, some of the, you know, cultural and social, let's say, commitments that have traditionally traveled with these practices, right? That help, you know, really allow them to flourish in people's lives, a lot of that can get denuded away or left aside in the pull toward, let's just make this available to the five-year-old in the classroom, in the secular classroom, or, you know, that workplace where people are coming together from different cultures and we have to do this in a way that doesn't offend various sensibilities that do require sensitive navigation. So um, it's, it's not really a critique of mindfulness in the world, although it might sound that way, but it's really an invitation to pause, you know, on this conversation, in this conversation, and to just think about how a willingness to look at some of the deeper traditional teachings in their contexts uh, might support bringing more of the depth that is present in those teachings into these more secular spaces that that we are um, privileged to work in and play in, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, to me, that is about the, partly about the ethical turn. That's what I'm thinking about right now. The commitments to do no harm to, um, right, in a, in, a, in a nutshell, right, to really ground our practices in awareness of our interbeingness, our interrelated interbeing, the term that Thich Nhat Hanh made famous, if you will, but our, our radical kind of always already presence in a world where our actions always matter and the mattering of our actions being very central in my read of these traditional teachings in a way that isn't always so central when we really allow mindfulness to just be kind of packaged as this personal support tool that's about our being the best we can be for ourselves <laughs> um okay. yeah yeah so that's there's that part and then there's the soulful part which is a whole kind of another part but i want to pause here and see how that lands. No, it's it's beautiful what i hear again is like i hear a spectrum there's a spectrum of depth if you will and and you know like the one end of the spectrum reaches many people but it also has less depth. And then when we progress to a certain level, then we want maybe more. And then these teachings, like these teachings you spoke about, which I am also very passionate about, I think come in and they are very important also. I think they have a very important role to play in our human or collective evolution. Right. And, and then also the things that I was talking about before, being able to really open up the, the sort of pathway from 
simple awareness and presence and noticing a little bit more to like just the joy of being alive and the spaciousness that I can, you know, bring into or sort of experience even as I'm in a difficult conversation to really experience those aspects, I think often takes a little bit more, at least in my experience, a little bit more than is maybe presented in some of the more widely accessible invitations to mindfulness. So I kind of also have this longing for everyone to have, you know, all of the possible benefits. And I think that's especially so when I look at the work that I've been doing to enable mindfulness to support social engagement, dealing with difficult issues like the legacies of racism and all the other isms and schisms. You know, it's in that work is, you know, where I get to see firsthand the limits of a kind of, you know, limited version of mindfulness to really help us dissolve the things that get in the way of us being in right relationship with each other. It's just, you know, kind of keep, I, I find myself wanting to deepen the, the field of support that the practices can offer uh, when I'm really trying to do, you know, support people in that kind of work in particular. Yeah, I, I definitely want to come back to that point. I want to come back to this small side sentence you made. And and then there is soulful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we can bring that back and say, okay, well, what actually is soulful? What, what is that? Right. <laughs> you know, I've been trying to think of the best way to talk about this as a bridge to more traditional dimensions of, of, of again, these teachings of mindfulness. And the thing I've landed on right now is that it's the space where we look at, again, a spectrum around attachments, right? Attachments, one of the big bugaboos, the root hindrances, if you will, in the traditional teachings of mindfulness, right? The, one of the things that can really disrupt our, you know, our development along the path is the way that we can um, attach to things that are always already impermanent and changing. And of course, we know that pushing away that which is coming toward and being sort of ignorant or delus deluded uh, in a fog of, of ignorance is another, right? So the, I'm talking about the three root hindrances, right? That uh, the Buddha, uh, the Buddha's teachings helped us understand as, you know, sort of. <laughs> The, you might say the kind of core dynamics that lead to the dissatisfactions that we associate with suffering, right? The things that get us sort of stuck uh, that we might find some relief from through a broader, deeper practices, eightfold path, middle way, et cetera. But when we look at the attachment piece, I think, you know, we hear that teaching and, you know, if we're drawn to these practices, we can really then get, all right, well, I really need to be I need to let go of my attachments. I need to be very mindful of the way I'm holding to right too tightly to things. And that can lead to, you know, a lot of different things, including, you know, maybe at the, at the far end, some unhealthy ways of totally detaching or wanting to constantly be totally detached, which can lead to other kinds of problems in our relationships and, and our invitations to engage, you know, in the world politically, et cetera. So the question of how and, and you know how to be in healthy attachment in a Buddhist sense or in a mindfulness sense seems very important. What is healthy attachment? And what are the degrees and dimensions of that? It's looking at that that I think is kind of analogous to or conciliant with what it is that I'm pointing to using this term soulfulness, which is a term that comes up in my experience as a black American raised in the southern part of the United States, which we know in the U.S. is like the region of the birthplace of something called soul in a musical cultural sense, mm -hmm. which, you know, is again, this, just to speak about, about how I see that culturally and then come back to what I see as a relationship between that and, and this concept in Buddhism. 
culturally we have people, uh, we look to musicians um, and in the black American uh, experience, music has certainly been uh, one of the ways that we have, as my grandmother would say, we've made a way out of no way, right? We've just found a way to survive literally hellscapes uh, since the, the middle passage through which my ancestors and others were brought here, you know, from the coast of, of, of West Africa and, um, you know, funneled in in a very systematic way into this American caste system that, you know, continues in a certain sense through into this day, obviously not in the way that it did, you know, at the founding 400 years ago, but the imprints of this caste are still with us and they have very, very painful present day legacies and the 400 year struggle from actual enslavement to the recapitulation of enslavement after the Civil War through segregation and through now has yielded all along the way real deep insight into how we might, again, manifest our full humanity, notwithstanding really difficult life circumstances. So the music of Black Americans has always actually been pointed to as almost a gift to the world for dealing with difficult circumstances. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois, a scholar of the you know, early 20th century, was one of the first people to say, the music of Black Americans, pay attention to that, all the way through from the spirituals that um, what were called Negroes at the time, Black folk in the period of enslavement, sang to get through the work songs through the segregation period, the the through to you know uh, R and B soul and so on, rap even today. So there's something about that music, and um, you know it's thought of as a, a way of holding the structures that 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 impinge upon our sense of freedom and ease, and transforming that into something through the bittersweetness of it, into something that is its own kind of liberation, its own transcendence. So it's a, and it's a way of like being present to what is not, not, but and allowing the deep embodied sense of ugh, that struggle, like to be alive in the face of these challenges to, you know, um, open up a kind of soulful way of, accessing joy and ease. And so for me, there's something about that dynamic that if explored could be a a support for understanding how our lived experiences in this world can't be elided. Like, you know, we, we, or we sort of try to transcend them before we're ready at our peril. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about looking at all the different ways that we are really quite stuck as humanity, whether whether we look at climate, whether we look at the persistence of replication of patriarchy, how it just goes away and comes back in a different form and racism goes away, comes back, you know, really pausing and allowing our mindfulness practices to help us with that, you know, to help us pause in the space of the attachments, the clinging, the subtleties of what keeps us doing in subtle ways the replications that maintain oppression in our own lives, you know, our own contributions to what ails us in our own lives, our families, our communities, and, you know, in a global sense where everything is connected. So really it's about, um, you know, using this term soulfulness as a touchstone for exploring the qualities of attachment, that each of us know something about. We all have our favorite things, our favorite crazy cups, whatever it is, our what we drink, what we put in them, the coffee, whatever it is. And then allowing a kind of willingness to explore and not be shamed by the reality that we do in our particularities have certain attachments, but allowing the space for exploring how to, you know, understand and, and be more, you know, present to what can come. The move from wholesome attachment to unwholesome 
and, you know, the thoughts around why I do deserve a little bit extra and a little bit more protection and a little bit more privilege compared to those people. It's very subtle to move from I'm comfortable, I'm joyful, I like certain things to I deserve to that person is less than. And so really, I just think it's a kind of a this turn towards soulfulness embeds a compassionate envelope, kind of that loving envelope that comes from Meta around this exploration of our attachments. And it's beautiful. There's a beautiful arc, like how you led us through through the understanding of attachment. And and I think that's that's for me where trauma comes in. I think what, what when you speak about unhealthy attachment, or that's where I think because and I, I run something by you and then let me know what yes. you think about it. Um, because then I want to transition a bit to the social impact and how we use mindfulness as a social transformation uh, agents, agent or something. Um, but, you know, when many people talk about being present, in at least in my understanding of trauma, in the traumatic moment, here in space and time, it's not good for me. Which means not being present in space and time is intelligent and better than staying in the adverse situation that is very painful and overwhelming. So I think taking that in account that actually many people fight in their presence practice, the, the part where they say or even judge themselves, oh, I'm not able to be present. I'm all the time distracted. And so that actually an intelligent mechanism is at work that when we re-own that and see that as intelligence, it helps us to ground it again. And then I think we can come to what you call a, a healthy attachment or detachment practice. But in my trauma, I'm bound to to repetitive cycles. As long as it's unconscious in me, I'm, I'm not able to change it. Only when I become aware. And I think that's where the mindfulness practice is, is really powerful. I think that's really powerful. So yes. first of all, I wanted to know what you think about that and then we apply this to the collective level. Yeah, I love this this question really about you know how that experience of that healthy, let's say spaciousness, you might call it disassociation, that which happens in the midst of trauma as a survival. Okay. I, I fully sort of resonate with and, and, and kind of um, my own experience of trauma and in the, the work that I've done that has helped me understand how trauma lives in our bodies and how we, yeah, how we move through the world as, as, as those who have experienced some trauma. Yeah, it, it very much, very much does resonate. Um, and, and then at some point, I'd love us to have a little bit of a conversation too, a side conversation about how this word trauma seems to be everywhere and for everyone all at once now. And so really discerning Maybe it's degrees or kinds of trauma. I'm not sure. And I'm not even suggesting I already know where, to, where that will take us. But I guess what I'm thinking about is how it is that that sense of disassociative spaciousness, sometimes it does come out of like literal traumas that we, some of us have experienced. Some of those folks that I was alluding to when thinking about how soulfulness emerged, right? Literally we're experiencing some real trauma and we're trying to figure out how to ground, you know, how to stay present and alive, survive through all of that. And then there is a certain way in which we can feel something very similar. That's just about just radically being uncomfortable with what is arising, what wants to come close. And so this, to me, having some way to kind of keep opening this conversation about what is trauma and what are the things that like maybe near enemies or may look a lot like trauma, but it's really kind of like, you know, they say in the social, uh, some of the sort of in the efforts to kind of open our, our awareness of what happens when we're invited to deal with othering in our midst, that it can feel traumatic just to create space for someone who looks different. 
you know. So I'm trying to kind of open up, what, what point toward, and I think a very important part of this, which is like really staying in a conversation about what, what is trauma and what is getting called trauma that isn't exactly trauma. But I totally, what you're saying deeply resonates. Yeah, and I, and I agree with you that there are different degrees, obviously, and the different intensities, and there's inherited trauma, and like, you know, we are growing up in a systemically traumatized world. And maybe we can talk about this a bit. So how do you see in, in your social justice work and your applying, also, you said it beautifully before, when we ethics, I often think as when there's trauma, there's always an ethical or very often an ethical violation of relationships. And, and so... The trauma healing, I believe, is only one step. The next step is the ethical restoration of the original relationship, if possible. I think that creates a full healing, like because then somehow something comes back into integration with life. And um, and I'm I'm curious how you mindfulness uh, ethics, your work as a law professional and a law professor and uh, social justice. Maybe you can speak a little bit how you experienced that, because I think we are both very interested in in working on this collective hurt or wounds, uh, especially a racism. Yeah, well, so this is where like these various strands, you know, I studied socio- graduate level sociology before going to law. And, you know, so we have all these discourses and of course we kind of coexist in like this Western intellectual context. So there's just like a lot of possible ways that we can um, put words around dimensions of what I'm speaking to, but I actually am feeling called to kind of step outside of some of the ways that we can language this and bring us back to this invitation that I think practice invites of immersion in a deeper, broader sense of what it means actually to be alive. When I think of the healing that I have been experiencing in some way, something I'm going to call healing around the trauma, some of the, some of the traumas <laughs> that I've experienced right. in the world, right? right. <laughs> um, you know, which for me uh, include, you know, growing up on a home where there was abuse and being, a, you know, being sexually molested as a child, just to name that. And, um, you know, so on top of these sort of, cultural traumas around racism and sexism and all the ways that, uh, that, that those dynamics have also been a, a feature, not a bug of my own personal experience. You know, I have these, these very personal moments in my life where this or that happened, which, you know, lived in my body as a kind of a, in a sort of way that resonates with what we call trauma in the classic sense of the, the study of that. And of course, the legal framework for thinking about uh, ethical responses invites a whole, you know, range of different ways of thinking about what ethic, where you know, about ethics, you know. And for me, mindfulness is so crucial. What I'm calling mindfulness is so crucial because it invites us into more deeply coming home to, you know, this. This 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 uh, life experience and the life force within it that is always so much bigger than whatever it is we think we've been traumatized by. So there's, you know, the stories and the narratives and the you know the way that we bring that into the, a world of law and a world of social justice and a, what a jurisprudence and philosophy and the you know different things that we can say about it. And then there's this question of. How do we experience healing Mm -hmm. and what do we need to experience healing? And I more and more feel the sort of, you know, repair coming out of the experience of presence, this, you know, a kind of presence to not, you know, my own um, experiences and life and that part of me that, you know, survived that traumatic thing in a way that wasn't harmed. But also just really feeling my presence in this more than human world. 
in a way that um, is also a part of the healing and has always been there as a part of the healing and which doesn't find a place in traditional social justice or legal or frameworks for, you know, sociological repair. It's realizing that we always already are these miracles capable of shape-shifting and moving through. And, you know, um, you know, we, we don't have words, I think, fully. I don't have words for some of the ways that I've experienced this thing we call healing in the face of these things we call traumas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very powerful. I, I completely agree also with you on how important presence is. Because only in presence we can heal. We cannot heal out, you know, in the past. We can't rush it. To your point, we can't rush to presence when exactly we're in the middle of the trauma. So there is a lot of nuance that I want to suggest there. Exactly. Exactly. It's beautiful. And so so how do you see us, for example, around racism and all the collective trauma of racism? How 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 do we create constructive spaces like spaces where healing can happen what are the ingredients what how do you see what's what do you see in your work is most effective well i do think a lot of love i'm gonna use the l word as i often do (laughs) in these conversations (laughs) um and i by that i just really you know i think I have struggled to articulate what I'm going to say here, partly because I just feel that in so many places it can very much be misunderstood or dismissed as utopian, but at the risk of all of that, um, you know, I do think (laughs) that what we are being called to do is, um, you know, remember who we really are. And that to me means that while uh, race and racism and all those things are are real in a certain sense, in the social sense. There are ways that I'm going to be met in the world that bear the stamp of this thing called racism, sexism, et cetera, that are different from how you'll be met, et cetera, et cetera. But I think more and more what we are, what I feel called to do in this time of radical kind of what I hope is a kind of awakening chaos that we're in right now is to kind of wake up from many different trances that we've all been kind of raised up in, Mm. including trances around, um, you know, how to, how to think about the ramifications of being in this body and and you being in yours that keep us reifying race and keep us reifying, you know, the, the sense of like me and mine and you and yours and what we need to do. So I think um, that when I talk about love in that context, what I'm really pointing toward is a way of first and foremost, compassionately holding the the moment where we meet, because I might be sort of wanting to radically rethink what race means. You might be just getting into the conversation about, about the history of racism and needing a certain kind of conversation about that. So lovingly and compassionately meeting all of, you know, all of our embodiments where we are as best we can is to me the essential first approximation to healing around all of these wounds and um and we're not all because we're all kind of coming into these conversations from very different places with these radically different experiences to me mindfulness at least for me the kind of practice that i've been fortunate to find and explore has been so heart opening around wow we're all in a fix you know, that we didn't create and that each of us has been put into the world, literally emergent in different places, <laughs> regions in this time. And we've had different kinds of lessons that have come through, you know, 
that the environment has enabled and our experience has enabled and different trainings and, you know, um, biases are kind of embedded in all of that. So we're all kind of in a lot of different fixes that we didn't create. And I know that to be true for myself. I know it to be true for every human being. So we're struggling in ways that are not obvious or that we don't sometimes don't even don't even think we're struggling with. So from right, I've had conversations where I'm like, well, we're all struggling. And someone's like, I'm not struggling. It's like, okay. <laughs> right. and it seems. <laughs> so again, like we're gonna be differently, you know, situated around just relaxing into what it takes to repair this idea of the hyper individual with agency, all our own, to heal everything or to wake up in our own way. When in fact, we're always embedded in worlds that are part of this thing called healing, are part of this thing called racism, that we cannot, you know, pretend don't impinge on us or, or I think we, you know, miss the reality that these things are impinging on us. Um, more often than we realize. So pausing with love and oh, being beautiful. willing to stay in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it be seems. willing to stay in it. Right. Yeah. And it takes time. And again, how counterculture is everything that we're talking about, right? Because we've all been formed. I know I was, I got three degrees from the university of Virginia. I love this university. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I hadn't, but did it not form me to have a very, you know, ready way to like frame a problem and, you know, short term, you know, the biggest time frame I could imagine for the problems we were invited were like, you know, a few years. Maybe you got a PhD project, you're looking at it for a few years. But by the end of that, you're supposed to have something very wise and insightful to say about this huge problem that you've been looking at. So in other words, our, you know, our highest and best institutions, I think, have are part of the problem. Because they form us into the sense of ourselves as atomized, separated, right, individuals who, who can change it if we try. And we just, you know, that, that embeds us with a lot of shame because we haven't done everything we should be doing. We never have. Look, everything still keeps. So <laughs> part of it is like realizing, you know, again, with some love that we get here, we've been sort of malformed into over you know, individualizing in this sort of outsized sense of our own agency that can be a setup for them. You haven't done enough all the time mm-hmm. and shame around that all the time. When in fact, all of these things are always present and always impacting us. The more than human world, the past, the future, whatever. It is, I mean, all of these things are in here and we don't, we don't have ways. I think yet we haven't formed the ways to really be, particularly wise in relationship to all that. So again, we are trained to think of what are the five steps I can take that by, you know, three weeks from now, or maybe four weeks, if I really am trying to change a habit, I can totally change. And so I think those are part of what, you know, those ways of knowing, those epistemologies, right? We're really just trying to disrupt all of that. And, you know, disruptions are not easy. And there's counter forces against the things we're trying to, right, bring alive in healing spaces, including just, you know, the, the, the challenge of the, what I call the tyrannies of time, getting back to that. It's like, how do we do all the things we're trying to do in a one-hour conversation or a, a whole luxurious week-long retreat <laughs> somewhere? It's like, we're just scratching surfaces. And that ability to create space to be a lifelong learner and to see our, whatever we call our awakening or our healing in these, you know, cross dimensions of time. You know, that's part of what I think we're invited to to try to explore together. That's very beautiful. I love this term, like being a lifelong learner. That's beautiful because it it doesn't presume an end to the journey, but it, it it teaches us more the skills how to be and walk the journey. And I think this is so beautiful what you said now. But I think that that's not obvious because often, especially when it's about inner development or cultural development, we we are thinking more about where is there than what is here. 
and, yeah. and, and, and being more like developing the skills to be in what is here is actually so much of the presencing practice that you yes. spoke about. That's beautiful. Yeah. And it's a humbling thing. Mm. It's a humbling. That's good. And I think, again, you know, like we wouldn't be in this conversation if we together hadn't experienced a certain kind of privileging trainings that can get in the way of this humbling invitation mm. to be like, all right, I really am also a lifelong learner, despite all the degrees and the books and the this and the that. <laughs> yes, this lifelong learning is, this is 100% me too. Uh, that's really not easy. And so there, I feel like there's so many aspects of what we're talking about that really actually are radical, which is why it's so interesting that something called mindfulness is like the thing that's on the tip of every tongue, the thing we're trying to place everywhere. It's like, do we want to place it everywhere? Because to me, the more we invite this kind of presencing, it can't, it cannot but really begin to transform things. Mm -hmm. It can transform things. And and also what you said about the lifelong learner, how can we in an emergent world that is constantly changing, how can we know everything about this world? We can't. So we need to be curious and curiosity is the essence of relating. Like that I'm curious about you. I want to know as much as yeah, I can yeah. about you in this hour because <laughs> yes. that's, that's what fulfills me. It fulfills me to feel you, to be yeah, with to you. To feel that connectedness. Exactly. And the curiosity beneath that yeah, is what, to me, that life force, this life force that's always present, notwithstanding the things that are painful, you know, notwithstanding the stories that we carry that can keep that pain alive in our consciousness. It's like, and so also is this life force that is, I think, really, you know, I don't even know. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson to talk about an ancient uh, teacher, if you will, uh, in the kind of transcendental, um, you know, uh, discourse, talked about our power. Here we talk again, agency, right? It's all relative, but we do have some. <laughs> it's not that we don't have any, it's that we overstate it. But that this life energy, in a way, is new. In the sense that we never know in a moment what's possible. We have all kinds of notions and then we read things and we write things. But what's actually possible is always a, a potentiality that is new in nature. We've never been in this moment before. We've never been in this, you know, and we saw during the pandemic how things can change quite radically on a dime. If we decide that we are open to, you know, and we have a good reason. So, you know. The, the the ability to be in touch with the novelty of every moment and like really apprehend that as a great potential that is usually untapped. Lots, I think a lot of that because of the fear we have of a novelty, kind of. It's like, no, I kind of, I know things from this perspective. And if I stay in this box, I'm always going to come out looking real good. But if I open up to like what I don't know, I might, that's a vulnerability that I want to, so again, there's, I think, so many ways that a, 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 a presence, a depthful presence, opens up not only curiosity, but courage. Because uh, vulnerability, which is also what we're talking about here, and which is, I think is essential to really healing and all of the ways that we might navigate trauma more effectively on every level. Is is a also you know can rightly produce a lot of fear. So that navigation of like all of those underlying dynamics that are predictable, and helping us develop more courage in the face of this beautiful invitation to to, to access what Brene Brown calls that power of vulnerability or that you know wholeheartedness that comes with vulnerability. I mean that's you can talk about that. But what that feels like for a lot of people is 
yeah, I'm going to be in this one hour conversation with, you know, Rhonda and Thomas, but actually I'm going to be politically voting for keeping the walls up or keeping those people from, you know, threatening my well-being right here, right now. You know, in other words, realizing our interconnectedness and, you know, the novelty of any moment can on the one hand feel like, wow, that's exciting. And on the other hand, feel like, wow, I really need to defend and, you know, Mm. make sure I'm protected against (laughs) what I can't predict on the other side of that. Wow. Mm. So Mm. how do we really, to me, this is where the love comes in. That's beautiful. Yeah. Very beautiful. I see a little bit of time. Maybe just the last thing, if there's anything that's on your mind, either what's the leading edge for you right now or anything you want to leave our listeners with uh, something, because you said so many beautiful things, I think they stand for themselves. But if there's anything that's important to you that we didn't talk about. uh, Well, I guess, I don't know how important, but I will say it's kind of on the mind right now. I have been thinking a lot about the aspects of this life context that we share on the planet that really are novel and that the whole world was thinking a lot about last week when we had the horrible tragedies of ocean faring on the one hand, immigrants who hundreds of immigrants lives were lost as we know, folks trying to escape oppressive circumstances, you know, in, in, in one region of the world, um, many from Pakistan, many from South Asia, trying to make it in a way that landed them in great peril and loss of life um, when their ship capsized hundreds of people on the one hand. And then, of course, the submersible incident, right, where folks trying to explore uh, found themselves in the depths of this part of this beautiful world that actually are beyond our ability to command our way through. I think there's something about, again, what we've been talking about, the actual vulnerabilities and the limits of our ability to sort of kind of capture and control by our agentic actions is showing up in those stories. You know, um, I don't have the words for what I think are the insights that might be drawn, but it's something about the power of these oceans and the um, the deep entrainments of the structures that keep us stuck, the structures of me and mine and you and yours, and um, you know what gets in the way of our making space for for all the life that this planet has called into existence. It must all belong. It must already right, be capable of thriving here. So how is it that we keep finding ways to reinforce these separations, to reinforce these notions that some people's suffering matter and some don't, some don't. But also how do we keep ignoring the fact that there is novel around us that we can't control just by our will, including that which rests in these vast oceans that we are, we have to take with the measure of respect that they're due. That's we're beautiful. always in some ocean, right? <laughs> that's right. We're always in some ocean. That's right. Yeah, that's lovely. So thank you very much, Rhonda. Uh, this was a beautiful ride, and I love your like the deep mystical nature that drives you, and the you know this this purity that you transmit. You transmit a lot of light, and and I it's very lovely to listen to you. And uh, I have a lot of resonance with many things yeah. you said. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, my dear. I appreciate all that you're doing and the mm-hmm. way that it's allowed us to connect. Uh, thank you for inviting me into this conversation with you and may it continue. May it continue. I had the same thought. Maybe we find another way to have yeah. another excuse for a nice conversation. I'll look for that too. <laughs> yeah, great. So thank you. Thank you. Hello, my name is Thomas Hubel and I just came off this wonderful conversation with Rhonda McGee on my podcast, The Point of Relation. And we had such a lovely deep dive 
that looked at mindfulness, deep mindfulness, like the also the deeper essence of uh, spiritual practice, and how that's connected to social healing, to healing racism, and how it's connected to humility and staying a lifelong learner in this world and being able to grow and evolve in our world. So. I feel deeply nourished by this conversation, and uh, if you're interested, so please uh, listen to my podcast, The Point of Relation. Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.